Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to be covering one of my favorite topics, and that is the topic of ethnobotany. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Edwards. Sarah is the author of this fabulous new book called The Ethnobotanical. Sarah is an ethnobotanist and biodiversity informaticist currently based at the University of Oxford in England, where she teaches ethnobiology and biological conservation and is also a plant records officer for the Oxford Botanic Garden and Arboretum. Sarah began her career as a botany graduate working at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. A lucid dream led her to Australia and embarking upon becoming an ethnobotanist, working with First Nations communities in the Northern Territory and Cape York Peninsula. Sarah has been a recipient of the Lawrence Memorial Award from the Hunt Institute for Botanical Documentation a Carnegie Mellon at Carnegie Mellon University. Sarah was awarded a PhD in medical ethnobotany from the London School of Pharmacy, which is now known as UCL, um, and that happened in 2006. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. It's really great to see you, and I'm excited to learn more about your recent research and your new book. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Cassie. It's lovely to see you again as yeah. well. <laughs> great to see you. I want to just start by introducing our listeners to what ethnobotany actually is. Can you tell us you know, a little bit more about what is an ethnobotanist and how did you become an ethnobotanist? I know you mentioned in your bio this lucid dream about Australia, so I'm very interested in learning more about that. <laughs> okay, well, so first of all, what is ethnobotany? I just, a quick summary, plants, people, culture. Basically, ethnobotanists study the dynamic interactions and interrelationships between people and plants as mediated through culture. But the discipline itself was only it only existed in in from the sort of end of the nineteenth century when the term was first coined by an American botanist, John Harshberger. But in those days, ethnobotany was really about looking for useful plants used by peoples who were considered often more very politically incorrect. They were considered more primitive than the um, Europeans and Americans at the time, which obviously is an erroneous way of viewing the world. And we wouldn't think like that today, of course. Um, but it's a very interesting subject because it's so interdisciplinary. And that's what I love about it. It's not only... Um, draws on the natural sciences but also the social sciences so we use techniques and methodologies from really diverse disciplines biology anthropology ethnography pharmacology um, taxonomy nomenclature linguistics so you name it it's got a very broad spectrum and we're very interested in traditional ecological knowledge how people perceive of the world around them, how they categorise plants and animals around them. Obviously, in ethnobotany, it's just the plants we're interested in, but in ethnobiology in general, it would be the sort of the broader natural world. How people utilise the plants in their environment and how they relate to them, how they understand them and conceive of them. It's... And yeah, land management techniques, how people manage the plants in the environment as well is something that ethnobotanists are concerned with. 
And very much, I, I think it's very interesting sort of looking cross-culturally. There's so much that as scientists, we can learn from other peoples that maybe have different ontological perspectives, how they view the world may be different, but we, there's a lot we can learn from it. Now, to your second question about the lucid dream. So this is getting into the realms of metaphysics, but it is a true story. I studied botany, as you said, and I was a botany graduate. And uh, when I graduated, I set, a, I set a, an entrance exam for the UK civil service. And um, I passed the exam and I got a phone call to say, you've been selected and we'd like you to go into IT, computer programming, because I scored highly on the IT aptitude tests that I sat. And I landed a job at Kew Gardens in the computing unit. So I was a botanist, but working computing, developing programs as a computer programmer, systems analyst, very scientific. I was also very interested, though, in people and plants. Um, the, the ethnobotany, as a discipline at the time, there were no degree courses in the UK in ethnobotany, but I would sit in on lectures at Kew. Obviously, we had visiting academics who would come and give lectures to staff, such as Gary Martin, Wade Davis, real eminent ethnobotanists, and I thought it was a really interesting topic. Anyway, I was still quite happy in my job as a computer programmer, developing this sort of taxonomic and collections management databases. And then one night, out of the blue, I had a lucid dream. I was dreaming, but I was conscious. And in this dream, I met this old Aboriginal man, uh, Australian First Nations man. Or, and what was unusual was that he was wrapped head to foot in bark. But he was communicating with me with his own language, but I was able to understand. And he was showing me the land and this bright red earth, deep red earth, and showing me all the plants that were around. And I woke up the next day and I just thought, I've got to go to Australia. Maybe I'm going to meet this man. It was so real. It was, I could even, it was tangible, this dream. So the next morning I went into work and I said to my line manager, what would you think if I took a year's sabbatical? Because I was a bit reluctant to give up my job at Kew. It's quite a prestigious organisation for the world of botany in particular. And he said, if the director agrees, and I don't see why not, the director at the time, Professor Sir Ian France, was really supportive. And there was also an Australian botanist at Kew at the time who said, if you can do whatever you want to do in Australia, what would it be? And I said, I'm really interested in ethnobotany. And he said, it's a long shot, but there's this guy working in the Northern Territory. I don't know him, but he's produced all these publications. You're welcome to have them. Maybe write to him and see what he says. So I wrote to this man, who's Glenn Whiteman, who is working for the Parks and Wildlife Commission in the Northern Territory. And I offered my services, saying I was going to be on sabbatical from Kew, wanting to work for other botanical organisations. I had my skills in databasing and computing that I could offer. And apparently he was so surprised to hear from somebody from the other side of the world, and he thought I had a lot of nows, to use his exact words, 
And he thought, yes, it would be quite useful for them as well to be able to help with their data. And so I started off, I went over to Australia and I had amazing adventures in that year. Lots of stories that nothing to do with science that are really quite amusing. <laughs> Seed collecting in the Great Victoria Desert. I got lost on the Nightball Plain. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I have to ask, did you ever meet someone who may, that resembled who you saw in your dream on these uh, journeys? So this is where it gets really spooky. No, the first year I went, I, I ended up working with predominantly with the Tiwi people who live in an island off the north coast of Darwin, about 80 kilometers off the coast. And I was adopted by one of the elders there and given a skin name and I was accepted and part of the sort of kinship system, mainly because I was offered food the first day I was there. There's another story. They, the first day I went out the field work, the elders I was working with went and collected all these mud shells and cooked them on the fire and presented them to me to leave to share the lunch with them. And at that point, I'd been vegan for a number of years. And I thought, do I give up being vegan or do I risk offending these women who had been with all that morning and I thought I've just got to be honest at the end of the day it was a really snap decision I thought I've, I've got to be truthful to myself and I said I'm very grateful for this food you presented it's wonderful that and I would I'd be very I'm very grateful but you have totem animals that are sacred that you can't eat all animals are sacred so I don't eat any animals and they thought it was great. They said, oh, you have such a hard law. I cry for you. You have such a hard law to stick to. So on that, I was made part of their family and adopted, which was really amazing. But I didn't meet the person from my dream. I went back to Kew after my year's sabbatical, back behind the computer, having had all these amazing adventures out bush. And one and I then went on to do a master's degree and then it was a few years later I had an email dropped into my mailbox from Australia from another Aboriginal community or First Nations community called Arakeen in Cape York inviting me to work with them to develop a database and an ethnobiology database and to work with the elders to document traditional knowledge. So I ended up getting long story got funding ended up going over to Arakeen and Cape York and when I was there reading the I found some old anthropology articles from the 1930s and it was describing how before the mission days before then they had the established the communities of mission when the Wick people who are the people that I work with from Arakeen when they used to pass away they would wrap the corpses in paper bark and carry them around on a stretcher for a year before they then had a cremation ceremony. And when I told people about that dream that had led me to Australia in the first place, they said, oh yeah, that's because you got work to do here, girl. <laughs> that spirit <laughs> called you because you got to come here to do that work. <laughs> I found out that, that the man did exist, probably, possibly, but he was no longer on this earth. Yeah. I don't know how can you can't explain it. I've got this sort of rational scientific head and then it's how do you explain it you can't yeah 
No, that's fascinating. It's these winding paths that take you places and there are moments of intuition or moments of inspiration that, that bring you there. That's fascinating. So you worked in, in, it sounds like a few different places in Australia in the yeah. end. And what was your main focus in the end? You were collecting seeds. Were you researching also kind of material culture? Or what were some of the different areas that you were working with? So I, as, as well as the work in that first year, I was there with the Parks and Wildlife Commission. The work ranged from working with the Tiwi people, but other communities, but also looking at, I was involved in a bushfire regeneration survey work in Kakadu, the national park, because many of the traditional practices around use of fire that have shaped the landscape of Australia. So when people think of they think of Australia, the outback as some vast wilderness, it's not a wilderness. It's a cultural landscape or cultural landscapes that have been carefully modified for millennia. The First Nations cultures in Australia are possibly the oldest continuous cultures on planet Earth. They've been date I think the recent dated artifacts that they found from a settlement have been pushed way back to 60,000 years ago. That's incredible. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time working in Cape York with the Wick people, the Wick, Wick Wang and Kugu peoples. And I was adopted there as well by the Songman, who was the principal knowledge custodian. And he was the last person in the community to have been brought up traditionally in the bush, living off the land. And as a teenager, his parents brought him into the then mission and exchanged him for flour, sugar, tea and tobacco. Which it seems really shocking that anyone, why would you swap your child for commodities? But it wasn't quite like that because at the time there were horrific acts of... You call them genocide, where people were being murdered in the bush. People of Aboriginal heritage were murdered quite frequently. So by bringing their son into the community, into the mission to be brought up by the missionaries, he was given sanctuary. So they would look at it like that. But he was also the last speaker of his language, Kuga'uwan, he was the last native speaker of his language that disappeared after his passing. And he actually passed away six months after I returned to the UK after finishing Mm. the field work there. And that's a big issue, the loss of languages. So that's something that I was going to say about ethnobotany. We're concerned with biocultural diversity. And there is a correlation between linguistic diversity and biological diversity and you can look at a global map that shows you that the hot spots of biological diversity correspond very strongly with hot spots of plant diversity. And some of the factors that are influencing this terrible loss of biodiversity that we're facing at the moment, with the latest figures suggesting that 45% of plant species are threatened with extinction. 45%, it's shocking. But those, but similarly, languages are being lost, and I think there are there's roughly around seven thousand seven between seven and eight thousand languages that are spoken in the world, seven thousand nine hundred, depending. On, some of them are maybe dialects, but we're losing many languages at the same time, and many of these languages are spoken by 
minority peoples, marginalised groups, many indigenous peoples. And, and also indigenous peoples who represent only about 5% of the human population on the planet are the stewards and guardians of 80% of the Earth's biodiversity. Yeah. This is making me think of, I think there was a paper that came out in a scientific journal in, in the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, maybe it was two years ago or two or three years ago. And they had a startling figure of a prediction that 30% of all languages on earth that are currently spoken will be gone by the end of the century. And that's, and like you said, that's where we have so much knowledge and wisdom held about biocultural yeah. diversity and ways of knowing, ways of being, ways of believing that will go with those. It's libraries of Alexandria being burned down across the globe as we speak. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. And especially many of these cultures that have never been documented, these languages have never been documented. So when you lose a language, you lose a whole worldview, a whole perspective. There's so much as well encoded in the names, but even where we don't lose a whole language, even in, say, British Isles, for example, many of the old folk names for plants and birds are being lost because people, I, I don't know, maybe it's to do with the education system, it's just a, the phenomenon is a global phenomenon where as we become more, I don't know, it's increasing technology, but at the same time, people are losing a lot of the common old names and within those names there's so much often encoded within them that there are stories associated with the names yeah I think there's been such a shift over the past century towards kind of technological advancement moving beyond the, the quote-unquote old ways and going more yeah. and more technical but at the same time we're seeing this emerging ecological crisis that's underway and i'm wondering you mentioned this astonishing figure with numbers of plant species at risk of extinction we're losing our languages as well we're losing systems of agriculture that have been practiced for millennia yeah. and systems of medicine, like the list goes on and on. And so I'm wondering from your perspective as an ethnobotanist, is there a role there? This Is there a role where scientists who have a deeper understanding of the people, culture, plants, connection, what can they contribute to this crisis of, of helping to stem this flood? A lot, I think. And I think that's, I think it's often been said that ethnobotany is the key for our survival because understanding traditional practices, which have very often, they have sustainability embedded within these practices. But also these understandings, as I said before, about understanding those interrelationships. So for many peoples across the planet, they don't see themselves as separate from the natural world so it's something that in our society we've become disconnected and it's like you go out into nature you go out for a walk in the you go out bush or you go out for a walk in the wilderness so-called wilderness but actually we are interconnected we have this reciprocal relationship that's how other people see it and for many indigenous peoples across the planet they see themselves as part of this extended kinship network where it's not just that we're interconnected, but we're all kin, we're all family, we're all related. And when you have that 
understanding of yourself within the world as being related to other living beings, you have a different relationship with them. They don't become objects to be commodified that the Western society has, how it's developed and evolved. But instead, they become beings that are part of your world and your life and you have a duty to protect them and care for them. And this other area that, you know, something that I think would have been laughed at in the scientific world that I've been in 20, 30 years ago, but acknowledging that there is sentience in other living beings, sentience in plants. I was quite often I was shown by the people that I work with in Australia and other indigenous peoples that I've met through working in Oxford. They will look at a tree and say, you've got to acknowledge the personhood of that tree. That tree is the same as you and me. And I think so some of these, I think there needs to be the shift in perspectives. And this is where we need to understand science can also is shifting in recognizing this. The work of Suzanne Simard, for example, her work on the mother tree and using scientific methodologies to actually confirm what many of our indigenous colleagues have been saying for forever. And we're now able to validate it. And I think that science has a lot to offer. Ethnobotany has a lot to offer the world. So the traditional land management practices I said about the burning regimes um, in Australia, that is so important because when the Europeans arrived in Australia, they thought the best way to manage the fire was to suppress fires. But actually, the First Nations peoples had these very detailed methods of um, having these cool burns early on in the dry season that would remove the fuel load and therefore prevent the destructive fires that we've been seeing in recent years. Obviously, climate change is a factor with increasing temperatures, but a lot of it is to do with the bad management of the land. And I know in North America as well, traditionally Native American peoples use burning techniques, Yosemite National Park, and when they the National Park was created and the, the Native American peoples were evicted from the land and the traditional land management practices were no longer being undertaken. The biodiversity gradually was denuded. It became, you had succession and you had these beautiful wildflowers that John Muir that fell in love with in these sort of wildflower meadows no longer existed a few decades later. There is a lot we can learn about these traditional land man- management techniques mm-hmm. and understanding that we are nature we are part of the natural world we're not separate we live in this balance that we've upset in recent decades yeah I want to just expand upon this concept of land management too I think there's this there's still I think a prevalent mythology or idea of the purity of the quote-unquote virgin forest Mm. and I think that all ethnobotanists recognize this that there have not been virgin forest untouched by humans in a very long time since humans walked this earth we have always managed our wildlands and it's through those traditional management practices that you know these really aggressive forest fires were prevented, that levels of ticks and other kind of Mm -hmm. vectors that carry diseases were kept at lower levels. There's a lot of science behind this now where ecological stations are looking at controlled burns and how this actually helps. So 
I think that's that goes back to this idea of separating humans from nature that in order to conserve that we must not touch nature, but indeed it, it's not that yeah. it's the healthiest land is often manage these traditional practices. Absolutely, exactly. And this whole concept of what's called fortress conservation, or these creating these protected areas, and it's still going on. A lot of the, there are quite a few very large conservation organizations, global conservation organizations, that still follow that ideology that to protect the land, you have to evict people to make it this sort of pristine natural world. But actually, by doing that, for a start, it's major human rights abuses. And I do follow, I don't know, Survival International, for example. Yeah. yeah. And they, are, yeah, they really try and highlight that this is going on and it needs to be stopped, this sort of evicting local peoples who are the best managers, the best caretakers of their local environment to evict them when they then become destitute quite often because especially where the people have lived off the land and they're no longer able to undertake their methods of sustenance and that is something I think that is really important that maybe we should talk about is actually land rights and land rights issues and one of the reasons why I think we're seeing this sort of terrible loss of biodiversity is because the people that would care for the land are being denied access. In the UK, actually, there's quite a movement at the moment. I say UK, England in particular, because Scotland have different raw laws around this, but this right to roam because oh, yeah. there's a real push underground sort of swirl to change the law to make there be a right to roam rather than be commit to trespass and be yeah maybe we can expand on this because in the u.s we have similar problems if you have no trespass signs you cannot have access to vast tracts of land most Mm -hmm. land in the u.s is privately held which really restricts access and what's not privately held is under in some ways force fortress conservation (laughs) paradigms Maybe share with the audience a little bit about what right to roam in Scotland looks like, um, just as, a, as, a, as an example. I think many are accustomed with not having rights to access to land, but yeah. they're not familiar with the opposite. So in Scotland, I've, it was only a few years ago, I can't remember the exact year, it might have been 2006, but the, a law was passed to allow the right to roam. So as long as you don't cause damage... You can, I mean, obviously Scotland's slightly different because there's a lot more open areas that, you know, and it's lost a lot less populated than, say, where I live in southern England. But at the same time, if you don't have access to the land, how can you know what's there? How can you protect it? It's, most of the land is owned by a small minority of people as well. So the vast majority of the population are corralled almost into these sort of urban centres and don't have access to, to, no, to the more than human beings that are in our environment that we would care for if we knew about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, is, uh, this freedom to go for a long hike, to explore different forests and, and peatlands and walk or or camp as long as you're not causing damage to the property and not exactly yeah dwelling there that you're allowed access which i think is just a a really beautiful model 
there was something else you mentioned earlier I want to come back to, and that's the work being done by Susan Simard on kind of this idea of resource allocation and communication across mother trees and their progeny, Mm -hmm. basically this idea of how a tree might mother its offspring by allocating resources. I think for many of our listeners, this idea of sentience or the ability to have feelings or react or have some kind of cognition or communication seems like a wild concept for plants, but it's not wild, right? In indigenous traditions. And from a scientific perspective, I can tell you because I do a lot of work on plant chemistry. Yeah, yeah. Plants, while they don't move at, at rates that the human eye can really appreciate, they are extremely reactive to what's happening in their environment. They are changing yeah. production of different chemicals Absolutely. every time that you cut your lawn and you smell that yeah. smell of cut grass. That's the plants releasing coumarin, screaming yeah. for help. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. That's what I've, I said to people. Plants do have a language. They are communicating with yes. us. They're communicating through their chemicals that they emit. Like you say, the, the phytoalexins that get released when they're damaged by a herbivore munching and they start saying, <laughs> and they tell all the other, their kin around them, all the other plants around them, and they start producing these chemical compounds to deter as antifeedants. Yes. And it's so amazing, that whole era of ecological biochemistry. Yeah, that's something actually I find fascinating. And as you say, it's something that our Indigenous colleagues have been talking about the plants that communicate when you get onto the area of these sort of entheogenic or psychoactive plants as well. You often hear about a lot of the sort of shamanic practices where they talk about the plants being teachers, that they educate the people to tell them about how to be in the world and to have that relationship loving relationship of understanding that that life is really magical and we're all connected and and we we are all related i wrote in my book as well about the hypothesis that we all descend all eukaryotic organisms share a common ancestor two billion years ago but nonetheless we are still related hundred <laughs> percent. I want to take some time to talk about your book, and I just want to share yeah. the audience again. It's a beautiful cover, but also really beautifully illustrated inside. I'll try and share some pages here for those of you watching the the video version of the episode. And you really do a lovely job of going into details around specific species. I see things on mistletoe, on dye plants, prickly pears. Evening primrose, some of my favorite plants here. Tell us yeah. a little bit about what led you to write this book and what is it really okay. about? What's your hope for this book? I'll tell you about this, the story behind the book. Um, a f- quite a few years ago, I wrote a book on phytopharmacy, which is very scientific. Um, in fact, actually, I'll show you this here. Go. It's very scientific very sort of pharmacological and evidence-based guide to herbal medicinal products and I was the lead author on this book and when I was writing it it was it no it's a very important book to write because it was needed especially in the UK where a lot of medical doctors and health practitioners have very limited understanding of herbal medicine. So understanding about the pharmacology and everything is really important that they understand that, that these are bioactive plants. Plants are bioactive and work on similar pathways as conventional medicines. But when I was writing it, I really wanted to 
write about the ethnobotanical <laughs> stories. And I wanted a pretty picture book. I wanted, because plants are so beautiful and attractive. And I was approached by Kew Gardens, where I used to work, and by the Kew Publishing. So would I be interested in writing this book? And I said, yes, this book is definitely for me to write. And I was so fortunate that it was with Q because I had access to Q's archives, image archives, and which also predetermined some of the plants that I could use or couldn't use. So there were a couple of plants that I would have liked to have included that Q didn't have suitable images in their archives. So they had to be dropped, sadly. And the sad thing about the book was that I was limited with space that I could only focus on a few plants from each area. So it was boiled down to six plants. And in the end, I chose those that I found really interesting, that I felt told a story about the intertwining of people's lives, different societies from way back in prehistory to now and how people walk apart, walk, walk this path of life with plants having an integral place in our lives and I suppose that the whole I really wanted to convey with a bit about this story of human migration plant migration people's use of plants how they've been shaped by societies and that yeah plants are just so important to us every society everything. <laughs> yeah everything for our survival for the air we breathe for the materials for clothing for food for medicine and modern materials the i think i the taka for example taka leonto petaloides the arrowroot the starch in that and the materials using modern biopolymers and there's all this sort of wow you know that Plants have this amazing capacity to pass as live on this planet. And yeah, I just wanted to show the beauty and wonder of plants. And that's really what the book's about, really. Plants and people and how we... Plants and people. That's great. Yeah. I think one of the, the special things about it also is, this, as you described, this opportunity to collaborate with Kew Gardens. And for the listeners that haven't been to a botanic gardens, you don't need to go all the way to London. If you are in London, make sure you do stop by Kew because it is one of the premier um, gardens in the world. But I, I'll just use this opportunity just to encourage you wherever you live, go to your closest local botanic garden just to learn a bit more, not only about the plants in, in your region, but also um, in many cases, they have some beautiful displays on plants from around Absolutely. the world. And, I think in order to appreciate these, it's just so important to have some relationship. I bring my class on a tour of the gardens in Atlanta every year, my medical botany course. And I always wait till a little bit past the midpoint of class. And the reason I do that is when we walk through, for example, the desert house and they see for the first time the Madagascar periwinkle, Mm -hmm. which is a plant that has become a source of very important anti-cancer medicines. All of a sudden, something that they may have just walked by without paying it any heed mm -hmm. or attention, they're taking photos of it like it's a celebrity they've just spotted. And it's, wow, this is the plant. This is Absolutely. the one that makes these amazing yeah. molecules that <laughs> saves people's lives. Oh my gosh. Like, it's so exciting when those bits of knowledge start to click where people can see, oh, this is how plants affect my life. This is the plant that saved my father's life, or this is the plant that helped my mother recover from a surgery or whatever. 
it's having those connections. And I think in these urban centers, when we don't have the right to roam, when we don't have those opportunities mm-hmm. to engage with nature, we have limited opportunities to build those relationships. And they're so important to have. That's very true. And that's something I've, I've been working on some projects with artists recently. Oh, so with yes. the, with, so really exciting projects. It's been wonderful. Um, I've been working with the London Borough of Richmond Art Service. And we've been working with young people in schools and I've been going out with artists, different visual artists, spoken word artists, been getting the young people to go out on the, we've gone out into the school playground or sometimes they've come to Orleans House Gallery where it's a naturally regenerated woodland and listen to the stories of the plants. So I've been telling them about the plants and listening to their narratives and the stories of why is this plant here? What, how has it been used historically? The yew tree, the, the story of Taxol, for example, in breast cancer and all these different stories. And suddenly, like you said with your student, it, and especially when they get to use art as a method to try and describe how they feel and what this, these interactions with the plants elicit, it's been really quite transformational and you're seeing this sort of the children suddenly like ping yes oh wow yes it's really interesting and yeah it's been wonderful and so I've been working as well with the art service we also work with young people in the care system so people who are like refugees and it was just so rewarding and it's just been wonderful but a similar project was working with some farmers in South Wales and that was quite interesting as well because there were a Welsh, speaking, Welsh farmer, farming family, the Dunsfords, and they'd been in this area of Carmarthenshire for over 300 years. And it was really interesting because having worked with First Nations communities, they also saw themselves as the stewards of the land, of the guardians, and they were very aware of their temporality in the landscape. And this landscape really rich in mythology and folklore and been written about going way back in the 12th, 13th century text. It's a quite magical place, but also it's a post-industrial landscape. So it's been heavily affected by the 19th century coal mines and ironworks. And that was really interesting, really interesting as well, walking the land to see what we could see and then listening to the sort of this multi-species ethnographic approach, really looking at what do we see and how do these interact with each other and what's their story and how did this plant end up here? And it was really fascinating because we came across evening primrose, for example, which is the North American plant and its story is entwined with colonialism and when the British first came over to North America, it was brought back first of all as an ornamental but then it was soon learnt about its medicinal properties and it was given the name King's Cure-All because of all its medical medicinal properties that it had but it's naturalised now so you see it growing wild and it's beautiful plant but it was quite interesting because the farmer's wife Kate Dunsford was saying oh this looks a little bit blousy it seems a bit out of place for the landscape (laughs) but it was really interesting hearing the story but also there are other plants there that are considered noxious weeds they're invasive species and what I thought was really interesting and it was trying to these plants that are seen as a terrible nuisance the Himalayan balsam for example it was actually introduced through Kew Gardens from the the, (laughs) 
typically botanic gardens sometimes makes these mistakes introducing invasive species but where it's been particularly successful has been in these post-industrial landscapes so I did a bit of digging why would it be here and it's very tolerant of heavy metals so where the soil so the soil has been damaged and is very high in heavy metals because of the mine workings the historical mine workings and the farmers actually said yes they found the high levels of heavy metals and it takes up cadmium so it's far more tolerant than other plants but it's actually I said rather that we can look at it as a terrible plant to be here it's invasive but actually you can look at it a different way and think actually it's healing the land the plant is transforming the land it's uptaking this cadmium it's able to it may take you know, a few decades, maybe a few generations, but it's actually going to heal the land. And perhaps once it no longer has that advantage over other species because the heavy metals have been lost, then it may not be so dominant in the landscape. Anyway, that was... Yeah, that's a beautiful example of how plants can heal the land in unexpected ways. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's about all the time we have today. I just want to, again... Tell us, where can we find your book? It's available right. through Q. It's available for Q Gardens. It's also available through major book retailers, including the major online retailer that is named after the big forest, rainforest in South America. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether it's being released in the US at the moment, but it's certainly available through that international retailer and also in the UK there's Blackwells and Waterstones and other major bookstores yeah great thank you so much Sarah for coming on the show I really enjoyed learning about your experiences in Australia and your work with artists (laughs) and your latest book this is really nice I'm I'm glad you're able to share that with us oh thank you thank you so much for inviting me it's been lovely talking to you this evening this evening for me and this afternoon for you All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Squadcast. I want to thank our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for putting on a great show for you each week. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Um, if you want to find this and our other episodes, you can do so by heading over to foodiepharmacology.com. We also have some fun merch and t-shirts and uh, mugs and lots of fun things there that you can pick up um, along the way to support the podcast. I want to also let you know that if you want to see the video version of the show, you can head over to our Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel where we have video versions of this and many of our other um, recent episodes. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.